Welcome to Reforming Slavics. Uh, my name is Nick, and today I have my sister with me, Anastasia. I mostly call her Asia. Um, we kind of were supposed to record with someone else, and that fell through just because a lack of time and planning. But today we will be talking about tongues. Do you speak them? Um, and, and when we're going to get into this, there's so much to cover, and primarily we're going to be focusing on the Acts of the Apostles and the four Pentecostal experiences that they have. And then after that, we're going to talk about Corinthians chapter 12 and 14 and compare my experience to uh, the biblical teachings of what Christians should experience in regards to speaking in tongues. So, starting off in chapter 2 of Acts, that's like the first mention of the Holy Spirit falling down upon the disciples, and here's what it says, and divided tongues as of fire appeared to them, and rested on each one of them, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit, and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And so that was like the first actual falling of the Holy Spirit. That's the thing that they waited for in Jerusalem. When Jesus, do you remember when Jesus was ascending into heaven and they were told to wait in Jerusalem for the coming of the Spirit? Yeah. Yeah. And so that's the actual experience they possessed. And so after that, they obviously go out and Peter preaches a sermon uh, explaining that we're not drunk with wine because it's only early in the morning, but we're filled with the Spirit. And those tongues happen to be understandable th- tongues that people could actually comprehend and understand, right? Yeah, they weren't just random. I mean, from experience, mm-hmm. whenever whenever um, people would pray in tongues, it wasn't something that you actually understood. It wasn't edifying. It wasn't anything that... Um, you can c- collect information yeah. with your mind, right? Yeah. So their experience was clear that they were understood by other people. There was no interpretation necessary. And that was the first Pentecostal um, movement. Pentecost is just 50 days after the celebration of Passover. And so that's where we get the you know, 50 days. Um, the second Pentecost occurred for the Samaritans. And that'd be chapter 8. And I'm going to just read verses 12, um, I believe through 14. But when... When, yeah, right here. But when they believed Philip as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized both men and women. And then 14 through 16 talks about the actual occurrence of the same experience that the disciples had in the upper room in chapter 2. Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that the Spirit might re- that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen upon them, but they had only been baptized in the name of Jesus. Right? And so, the time that the Samaritans believe, like they are actually baptized in the name of Jesus, but there's no experiential pouring down of the Holy Spirit and then speaking in tongues until they have apostles come down and pray for them. Mm-hmm. And so the interesting part about that is they had to send people to pray with them to receive the Holy Spirit in the sense of Pentecost, right? 
And so that's the second Pentecostal experience for the Samaritans. And this is actually following the Great Commission. When Jesus said, you know, preach the gospel in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. That's fulfilling the Great Commission. The Holy Spirit is falling upon them in that order. And that's how the disciples are going and reaching um, the lost, right? And then the next experience is with Cornelius and Peter. And essentially the entire chapter, um, chapter 10, is broken down where Peter experiences a vision. He sees that there are animals unclean coming down a sheet three times. And then it finally clicks for Peter that all things are made clean by Christ. And then uh, there is an angel sent to Cornelius to tell him that he needs to send for Peter and he will speak the words of life, which he needs to believe to receive eternal life. After that, Peter receives the message and he goes and he preaches the gospel. And um, in Acts chapter 10, verse 45 through verses 46, this is what it says. And the believers among them, the circumcised who had been come, who had come with Peter were amazed because of the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles, for they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. So the interesting thing about Cornelius was he was a God-fearer. The God-fearers were people who believed in the Old Testament Yahweh. They were participating in the sacrifices. They participated in the laws of Judaism. They participated in all these things. The only thing they didn't go for in Judaism was circumcision. That That's where they stopped. So they weren't circumcised. And so he was a Gentile. Yes, he was a God-fearer Gentile. But in Acts, there was a distinguishment, distinguishment between the God-fearers and the Gentiles. Because what, what, what would be the, the differing? So the Gentiles did not believe in Yahweh. Like they were, they were just pagans who believed in idols and like Ephesus, for example, right? All the Roman and um, Hellenistic um, deities, uh, Zeus and um, Ar- Armidus and all, all those um, deities, right? They believed in those. And so the differentiation between God-fearers and the Gentiles were Gent- Gentiles did not believe in anything about Yahweh. But the God-fearers believed and followed Yahweh and his word up to the point of circumcision. They did not get circumcised. Okay, but does their belief... I get... How do I word this? Like, Does their there, belief... There is no covenant between the Gentiles who were god-fearers no there is no covenant listed in scripture so so there are elements of old testament things that describe god-fearers for example if uh, someone desires to live with the jews and follow god's law they're free to mm-hmm. but the covenant was made with the people of israel like the old testament covenant was specific for the people of god which primarily are israel that's why you know uh, later on Paul talks about the fact that Israel was cut off, that you, a wild branch, might be grafted in, talking about the Gentiles. But essentially, yeah, Cornelius was a God-fearer. He followed Yahweh, Old Testament sense, but he was not circumcised. And so that's the amazement of (laughs) the people with Peter, is because they're shocked that the Holy Spirit falls on people who weren't circumcised. Yeah, like, to... I'm just like thinking from the perspective of like, if you were a Jewish person and you 
knew that you had a covenant with God and you were, you know, you were God's people Mm -hmm. and you viewed Gentiles as something that, I mean, you were instructed not to associate with people who were Gentiles. So then when this new covenant occurs that maybe they didn't fully grasp yet, it was like a shocker. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. And so uh, there was councils made, right, in regards to the fact that, well, we saw that the Holy Spirit fell upon the Gentiles just as it did on us. What do we do about that? Well, it's the Holy Spirit of God that fell upon them. We can't reject the Gentiles. They're part of God's kingdom. And so that was the marker that, that you know allowed them to accept the Gentiles into the church, into the primarily Jewish church, right? Even with Samaritans, they were a half-breed of Jews and Gentiles, and they were fiercely hated by the Jews. But because the Holy Spirit fell upon them, um, that was the marker that Christ had atoned and sacrificed himself, not only for the Jews, but for the Gentiles and the Samaritans and the whole world, right? And the Great Commission is being fulfilled by saying, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And then the last um, experience of Pentecost that occurs in the book of Acts is chapter 19, and that's um, Ephesus. And that's like the full-blown Gentiles those who had nothing to do with God, those who did not believe in Yahweh, right? They believed probably in a paganistic understanding or if they were Hellenistic um, Greeks or they were Romans, they believed in their pantheon. And um, in Acts 19, it talks about how this happened for the Gentiles. This is the final outpouring for the Gentiles. It's Acts 19, 1 through 6. And it happened that... While Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you, were, when you believed? And they said, No, we, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what were you baptized? And they said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of Lord Jesus. And when Paul laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. So there are four Pentecosts in Acts for four different people groups to establish the fact that God had redeemed a people from every nation and that all all men around the world were now part of the covenant of God if they believed the Holy Spirit would come upon them. Um, and the distinguishing facts were the, this, that in every single Pentecost, there was an apostle present or the apostles were present. In other words, the eyewitnesses of Jesus were present during the foundational laying of the Holy Spirit falling upon them. So you would... Um, you would say that the Pentecost in each each four of these situations was specific to that time and specific to like um, to ushering in these new people groups into the covenant, kind of like affirming that they were in fact there. Yeah, yeah. By God's calling. Yeah, essentially God is establishing that 
all these people groups are part of the covenant now. And the Pentecost occurred as a historical event establishing those things. Um, we shouldn't await for a new Pentecost because, you know, the foundation is already laid and it's following the Great Commission. The Jews are already part of it. The Samaritans are already part of it. Then the God-fearers, those who believed in Yahweh but were not fully Jews, and now even the wretched Gentiles who were pagans and worshipped idols and served demons are part of the kingdom through the repentance of faith and turning away from their sin and obviously believing in Christ and his atonement. And now the Holy Spirit falls upon all them. And so um, nowadays, obviously, there are all these crazy movements of like new falling of the Spirit and um, the new wave of Christ coming and, and the Holy Spirit being, you know, regenerating this new idea of somehow a greater Pentecost. And it seems that all the Pentecostal ideas that were supposed to occur, occurred for all the people groups of the world. There is no people group outside these categories that it needs to occur for, right? Because we can, we can do categories like, oh, the Native Americans, oh, the Europeans, the Asians, but the Bible doesn't have those categories, you know? Or the chosen people, the Slavics. Uh, we'll yeah. get into that, yeah. <laughs> but um, the four categories that the Bible establishes through Acts are the Jews, the Samaritans, the God-fearers, and then the Gentiles. And after that, there's no necessary need for Pentecost. You know, funny you mentioned that in the Russian community, we do prayer for the gift of tongues and the filling of the Spirit on Pentecost, right? But if we really want to be like by the dot, we should do it on the Gentile version of Pentecost because 50 days from that was for the Jews only, right? Yeah. And yeah. then later on, it was for the Gentiles. I think, I think sometimes we forget that we are in fact not Jewish. <laughs> We're not the chosen people from yeah. the Old Testament. Yeah, we have a lot of um, things that we try to attribute especially us Slavic people who came from Russia, like, well, we're in the promised land, which is America. Well, we are to conquer, right? We are to be the example to the uh, those wretched Americans. Not realizing the history of America was like, the gospel came from the States to Russia in the sense of Protestantism and, you know, Baptist and Pentecostal. All those traditions came from the United States. Mm -hmm. I mean, we all had some cold dead orthodoxy going on you know russian orthodox but we didn't have any protestantism in russia until those guys decided to become missionaries um i guess what comes to mind when we talk about holy spirit and um when we would my experience with prayer for the baptizing of the holy spirit it was almost as if that was linked to salvation. Mm -hmm. So could you maybe go into um, regeneration by the Holy Spirit and how that's different from Pentecost and being quote-unquote baptized? Yeah. Um, let's take the long way about that because when Pentecost occurs for all these different people groups— um, the initial reason for Pentecost is for the receiving of power and the falling upon of the Holy Spirit. 
and the prophesying and the speaking of tongues are just uh, evidences of that. Like they are gifts that represent that the Holy Spirit had fallen upon them, right? But they had believed prior to the Holy Spirit falling upon them. Yeah. So they, they believed and some groups were baptized and then right, some people got baptized in the water first. Some people were baptized in the spirit first, but in all categories, they believed on the Lord Jesus and you can't believe in the Lord Jesus unless the Holy Spirit regenerates you. Also known as being born again, right? Yeah. The, the, the experience a believer has when they realize that they're a sinner is acknowledgement of sin. Repentance is saying, God, I recognize my sin and I am turning away from it and trusting in you. And then saving faith is the gift of God that what happened that happened to be the gift that God gives prior to you saying, I repent, because the acknowledgement of you being a sinner is the gift of the Holy Spirit of saving faith. That's mm-hmm. already occurring. Mm-hmm. And so that is different from an outpouring of the Holy Spirit for the empowerment for ministry and for preaching the gospel to all nations. And Pentecost is the example that God had poured out his power and his authority, not only on the Jews, but also all these people groups and all nations, obviously, to go and be full of the Holy Spirit. Now, the Bible differentiates between being full of the Holy Spirit and being able to be a full-born Christian who acts in the Spirit, lives in the Spirit, has the power and the authority of the Spirit, and the gift itself of speaking in tongues and prophecy and the, the, the gifts that are mentioned in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and then 14 uh, talks about prophesying and tongues. But I, I, we don't have time to go into all of that. We should focus on tongues. Um, you mentioned your experience of praying for the gift of tongues. Uh, yes. Yeah. So do you want me to like you can break tell, it down. tell the story? I think I think my experience is very similar. I don't I don't know if we uh, did. We might yeah, have even been so, in the same room. Yeah. So the way our church did it, well, the church that I went to at the time was we had a prayer for anyone who would like to receive the gift of tongues. Was this was this on Pentecost? I think I think so. I okay. can't I can't like say for sure, but so we would all be in like in a room uh praying for the gift of tongues. And um I think one of the first things that they would tell you is you have to make sure that you repent of every of any sin that you can think of. Mm-hmm. And then just start praising God. Just start repeating hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if you happen to um, pick up some new language, then that means that you were baptized. Mm -hmm. And sometimes they would ask you to repeat after them, Mm -hmm. like certain phrases. And it just... When, like, thinking back on it, that's not the work of God. That's the work of man, right? Because you are trying to appease God and say, hallelujah, hallelujah, as if you're, you know, praising him. But if it's written out or, like, told told 
to you, like do point A, point B, and then you will reach your destination. Mm -hmm. That's not a gift, right? Yeah. That's no longer a gift. Yeah, and my experience is very, I mean, almost identical. It was, I believe it was like 12 or 13, and it was the day of Pentecost at our church, and in the evening service, they gathered primarily teenagers, but also a lot of folks that just wanted the gift of the Holy Spirit. To me, it wasn't explained ever whether I was praying for the gift of tongues. But always encouraged. Or if I was praying for the filling of the Holy Spirit and the same experience that the apostles experienced during the day of Pentecost. Like, I never got that. I never. I was never told whether it was that or just the gift that I was praying for. I think there was almost a confusion about, you know, are you in fact saved if you don't speak in tongues? Because I remember there were certain people who were like devastated that they didn't get, get the gift of tongues and they truly thought that they were not saved. Yeah, I, I would say it was like a shipwreck of faith almost. And so we were gathered in a small classroom and there's probably, I don't know, 20 to 30 people, um, some older folks that were praying in tongues were kind of um, there. And then there were some, a lot of young people who did not pray in tongues were there. And I was told to just start repeating hallelujah really, really fast. Mm -hmm. And so that would merge and almost slur into a new language. And I was told that you will just keep on going, keep your mouth moving and that will, f and God will fill it. In other words, if you're moving your mouth, God will fill it with tongues. And so, um, I was told just repeat hallelujah, hallelujah, fast, fast. And I sometimes slur my words to begin with. <laughs> and so I, you know, I was told to do that really, really fast. And, uh, there were people who told like, repeat after me. Um, mm -hmm. I wasn't, mm -hmm. I didn't happen to have that, but I came out of that room confused and not sure. And I remember maybe a couple months later, uh, our aunt, uh, Trisha Tanya asking, so did you receive it? And I was like, I, I don't know. And she's like, well, do you speak in tongues? And I was like, I, I didn't want to say no. Cause I had an experience of saying something, but I didn't want to say yes. Cause I wasn't sure. And later on a couple years later, or maybe a year later, we had a teen camp in which we had a prayer for just repentance and you know one of those come to jesus moments and they prayed in groups and i believe i started speaking in tongues then and i was like speaking in tongues like loud <laughs> and and that was like a big part of my life for about until i was 19 and i just started asking questions in regards to like well what does scripture say about this and wasn't sure and um you know, obviously I listened to John MacArthur and Strange Fire Conference and um, I wasn't really on their side because um, I just didn't see it from the biblical perspective, um, their point of views. Um, I, I understood the criticisms toward uh, the people who barked like dogs, ran through fire tunnels and pretended to be drunk in the spirit. Like those were evidently not biblical, but I, I didn't bite on the whole gifts have ceased now because um, I didn't see it from scripture. And so... I was really, I prayed in tongues for a while, but then I just wasn't sure I had the gift. For a long time, it, I stopped praying in tongues completely because I was afraid of answering that question. You know, I was afraid of saying like, do I pray? Do I not? And so that was a big portion of 
not even wanting to address the issue. Like, do I pray? Do I not? And then I just sat down and said, well, Lord, uh, your spirit lives in me because I believe in the gospel. Mm -hmm. Um, I am not any less of a Christian because I don't speak in tongues because it is a gift from you. And also, um, I don't think I'm less or more spiritual if I speak in tongues or not. So I currently don't believe I speak in tongues. Yeah, I think for me personally, where my hesitation towards this, um, I don't know if you, I don't know if you can, if I can take a stance on where I'm at with uh, whether or not I believe that tongues is something that we should practice and um, actively pursue today. Mm-hmm. But my skepticism began from like, it was never addressed as to why you needed to have that gift in the first place. Mm-hmm. You know, if you, if, um, if you are not saved because you don't speak in tongues, then like a lot of people who truly love Jesus were left confused. Yeah. So that didn't like, the puzzle pieces just didn't fit. Yeah, and it seemed, um, the reason I went over the four Pentecost or, or the first Pentecost in Acts is to say that these things did happen and these things are evident. But if we break down my and your experience, we can see that A, no one taught them to pray in tongues. It wasn't even something that they really expected. Obviously, in Mark chapter 16, toward the end, Jesus says they will speak new tongues. That's a textual variant. If those who are listening understand what a textual variant is, um, kind of know that might not be original. For those who don't, I'm not going to get into that because that's a lot more complicated and it takes a while to explain. But just the fact that even if you know Jesus actually said those words, that they will speak in tongues, doesn't mean they all, in a sense, will have to speak in tongues. Just like not everyone prophesies. Not everyone yeah. does these things. And so... Um, the biggest support I have scripturally for the experience of tongues um, that I understand happens to be obviously the chapters, the two chapters that talk about tongues in the Bible, which is First Corinthians chapter twelve and First Corinthians chapter fourteen. I really want to read an excerpt from First Corinthians twelve twenty through thirty. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administration, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess the gift of healings? Do all speak in tongues? Do all interpret? And the idea of this passage is that the answer at the end of this text should be no. And I find it very interesting that Paul did not only include the miraculous gifts in this list, but he also included the, the gift of administration. A lot of cessationists will say, well, the gifts have ceased. But from my perspective, Paul viewed the gift of administration and the gift of tongues and the gift of various helpings and um, teaching as not in different categories. You know, Today, a lot of people separate the gift of tongues and prophecy and the miraculous gifts. 
from the categories of administration, teaching, and just serving and helping, right? Mm-hmm. They're and, more practical. They're yeah, more... yeah, yeah. Paul doesn't do that here. He puts all of them together and saying, the Holy Spirit is the one who's producing and giving these gifts, and they're all miraculous, and they're all charismatic. So that's kind of where I take my stance. But also, he clearly states here that the answer to to do all do works of miracles are all apostles, do all speak in tongues? Do all prophesy? No, not all people prophesy. And so that's a complete contradiction to our experience where at the church, it was told that everyone must speak in tongues as an evidence that the Holy Spirit had filled your heart and given you power to do the works of administration, to do act in prophecy or to act in healing. And it was almost viewed as a stepping stone to all of these other ones. Like, mm-hmm. you, if you did not speak in tongues, then clearly you were not filled with the Spirit. And for some people, being filled with the Spirit meant that you were not saved necessarily, or you were you were in this limbo mode. For some people, it just meant that you weren't empowered with the Holy Spirit yet, and you were like a second-tier Christian. You weren't filled with the Spirit. And I clearly see from Scripture that Paul is talking to faithful people, faith-filled people, people who are full of the spirit that not all of them possess the gift of tongues. Mm-hmm. That's the conclusion I come up with from the text. And so I would say that if we, if we take and like break apart our experience, one thing we can affirm is that it is a gift. Tongues is clearly a gift, but it's not the only evidence of being full of the spirit mm-hmm. because not all people who believe in Christ as their savior are full of the spirit speak in tongues, right? Yes. And so, like, that's a clear text that I go to a lot of times and say, well, you know, people who claim that you're not fulfilling God's plan if you don't speak in tongues. I say, well, Paul didn't believe all people speak in tongues. And he was the apostle who rigorously wrote about these things. Mm-hmm. Right? Corinthians. Um, but on the other hand, there are people who claim that, well, no one should speak in tongues. Right, that that happened to be a miraculous gift that God gave, and now it ceased after the apostles died, and um, that was kind of the age of the apostles for the founding of the church, and it no longer happens to be the case. Um, that's an interesting argument, but a couple of things about that would be that just because the apostles have ceased doesn't mean the gifts have to automatically cease. And I say that because all the texts of Scripture were written by eyewitnesses. You know, even Paul was had seen Christ and was commanded by Christ to be a uh, apostle to the Gentiles. And so, I would say that the reason Scripture has been ceased being written is because clearly you have to be an eyewitness, or have to hear the story of eyewitnesses. For example, Luke and Mark got stories of eyewitnesses. And after the eyewitnesses died, you can't really be an eyewitness. They're self-destructive, right? Like once mm-hmm. you die, mm-hmm. you're gone. You're no longer an eyewitness. And I believe that's partially why the canon is closed. And obviously the 12 apostles no longer are here present on earth because they died. So the apostles ceased by natural means. I don't see that argument for the gift of tongues, especially because what do we do with the admonitions of Paul in Corinthians, like chapter 12 and chapter 14 is almost meaningless 
application-wise to the modern-day Christian, if that's the case. Right? Well, the, the function of that gift in 1 Corinthians 14, 3, mm-hmm. 3 through 5, it says that it's for upbuilding, encouragement, and consolation. So, like, we still need those today within the church. Yeah, and primarily these gifts should function in the church for the upbuilding of the church, not for some kind of verbose boasting that you have a gift. The very idea of a gift is it's given to you by God's grace without any or very little even acknowledgement of it, right? Yeah. Paul does say, uh, seek the gifts earnestly, but nevertheless, it's a gift that was given by God graciously. Yeah, you can't do A, B, and C to reach a gift. A gift is given, and it's given freely. It's not because yeah. you follow a formula. It's not because you you know, are holier than your brother. It's just given. Yeah, and so um, especially when people get taught speaking tongues, it's one of the most frustrating things to me because there is this idea that the actual act of speaking in tongues gives you some kind of unique qualification of spirituality that is not present in other people. But what I found baffling is when we were growing up as teenagers and youth, I would see the most wretched people speaking in tongues very loudly and very well. But I knew that they were living lives that did not represent Christ in any way, uh, shape, or form on, on the daily, right? With the way they talked, the things they did. <laughs> Most wretched people. I mean, I mean, we're we're all in the same boat. But I, I'm saying in you, regards to if you, when you know someone well enough. <laughs> I, I would have put myself in the most wretched. Right? Paul says I'm the chief chief sinner, but I'm just saying in regards to like if you if you look at someone who speaks in tongues and claims spirituality because of that mm-hmm. and their life does not reflect yeah christ and the fruit of the spirit mm-hmm. then does the fruit of the spirit somehow is the fruit of the spirit somehow lessened because you have the gift of the spirit aren't isn't it the same spirit who gives both the gift of tongues mm-hmm. and grows the fruit of the spirit in your heart and in, in your daily life yeah it's i guess it's um kind of ignored that the gift of tongues and being baptized with the Holy Spirit, it's like we forget that it's not just like a function to make you closer to God. It mm-hmm. literally is God. Yeah, He is like, the third person of the Trinity. It is God. Like you can't he is order God. God. See, I'm going to even correct you that you can't say it is God because oh, it refers to a non am <laughs> Yeah. So you could yeah, say, yeah. and yeah. that's the whole he point. He is God. Like you can't, you can't, order god around you like try yeah. <laughs> but then he's not god if you if he you know, listens yeah. to you um another another passage that kind of speaks about the function of the gift of tongues let, let's say a cessationist and a continuationist come together and say well okay we can put that issue aside but what was the actual function of the gift of tongues in the corinthian church when it was for sure present right paul mm-hmm. writes about these things that actually happened and in 1 Corinthians 14, 3 through 5, it says this. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now I want you all 
to speak in tongues, but even more prophesy. For one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. If anyone speaks in a tongue, let there be one or two or three at most. Each in turn, let someone interpret. But if there is no one who interpret to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. So that last part you read was First Corinthians fourteen twenty seven through twenty eight. Yeah, I skipped. Yeah, I skipped yeah, a did. whole bunch in Corinthians it just because it's up. a long chapter. But the whole point here, right? If we take the first passages, um, clearly, prophecy builds up encouragement and consolation. Mm-hmm. And it's for the church. Like we encourage each other through this mechanism of the gift. Um, and also, there is an order. Yeah. Also. Yeah. And so clearly, a prophecy is important, and we build each other up. And the function of the gift of tongues in the Corinthian church was that someone would say something in an unknown language, and then some other person would interpret that language into an audible, understandable language where people can get encouraged and consoled and outbuilt, right? That was the function. But if there was no one present who had the gift of interpretation, then everyone would be silent and speak to themselves and to God. Um, Some people disagree on regards to like, can you speak in personal devotion to God in tongues? I I think that Paul clearly says like, if you speak to yourself and to God, you know, because he's talking about tongues here, and the context is, well, let's talk about tongues. You know, if everyone's speaking in tongues, is too crazy. And so if there was no interpreter, then you could speak to yourself and to God in tongues. Mm-hmm. And then later, um, it talks about the fact that there's only, or right in that text, two or three at most, and everyone takes turns. Um, there's this idea that also the same kind of tongues occur all the time. And that there is no tongue that could be mysterious or unique that is not known. Meaning that all language, all tongues or all languages, right, are that are spoken in the New Testament have to be known languages. Meaning that there is no, um, for lack of a better term, gibberish that occurs when someone speaks. Um, my stance is that clearly in acts in the four pentecost well no i would say in acts in first pentecost it's clear that it's tongues that are known mm-hmm. two during cornelius's conversions tongues that the jews understood that they were extolling god so those were known um and so we see acts primarily has known languages and you could if you um translate tongue it doesn't mean like tongue it means like language like yeah word yeah so, you know, the King James did its work on that. But I would say that I would give room in regards to if there is interpretation that's needed that's supernatural, I don't see a limiting principle on New Testament believers, regardless of its, if it's today for today or not. I, I believe that New Testament believers who experienced the gift in Corinth where Paul was writing um, could have spoken tongues that were not known languages. And I just, the reason I say that is because I don't see any limiting principle. I see limiting principle in Acts, but I don't see a direct teaching against it. So I'm not going to choose a side of yes or no. Mm-hmm. Um, and so obviously at the end of 
Corinthians, this is my strong argument for the continuation of the gifts, is that so my brothers earnestly desire to prophesy. Do not forbid speaking of tongues, but all things should be done decently and in order. I don't know how you can take that that conclusion of Paul and say, well, that was meant only for the age of the apostles announced they passed on to glory and they died. There's no more opportunity for you to experience this gift. Um, I love how our pastor Jason said that um, my favorite New Testament teacher happens to be charismatic. And so I want to hear what he says talking about the apostle Paul. Mm-hmm. And uh, I would stand um, and say, well, I think that's, that's correct. Apostle Paul was a charismatic, right? And again, bringing up the fact that he didn't dis- differentiate between the gift of administration and the gift of tongues. He clumped them together in the same list. Yeah. Right? I would say that tongues are for today, but my caution and my like stepping back and like cringe is the fact that we've experienced so many bad interpretations of scripture in order to achieve these uh, false tongues, I can say, right? Yeah, I would agree with that. And so, I for the, like talking to you and talking to a majority of people who are reformed or kind of follow a biblical understanding of continuation reformed movements, right? Mm-hmm. Not cessationist. All of them are extremely cautious of tongues because of experiences they had that were bad in churches, ra- rather than coming up to that conclusion. It's the experience that made them really cautious of it, right? And we shouldn't base our faith on experiences, but we can't ignore them because they're there. Yeah. Um, But the Bible also does, you know, tell us to test all things. So. (coughs) Sorry, I coughed. You know, caution is not necessarily a bad thing. Yeah, (laughs) discernment of the spirit. Um, But a big pushback that we would have let's say we were having this conversation with the full-blown pentecostal believer loves the lord clearly our brother and sister we would not say you know that they're not a christian we would we love our pentecostal brothers and sisters like we call them brothers and sisters in christ because same faith yeah we just happen to disagree on a secondary issue that has very like strong consequences obviously but does not have anything to do with their salvation. This is a secondary issue, right? They would say that, well, how can you explain all of the people that speak in tongues in all the churches, right? How do we explain the person who's living a very ungodly life but speaks in tongues? Have you ever thought of that? Yeah, uh, yeah. So That doesn't, yeah, those it's, two, those it's two like pieces a, don't go together. It's like a contradiction. How is someone who is filled with the Holy Spirit baptized in the Holy Spirit, let's say, and their baptism should be represented in power to war against sin, have the fruit of the Spirit grow in them, and be able to do ministry. Like, those are the the basic functions of a daily life of a Christian that the Holy Spirit, He enables. Mm -hmm. And then the gift of tongues is just a gift. Yeah, and if it's ministering to your spirit... That should definitely show on the way that you live your life and yeah. conduct yourself. And so there's this conundrum that I've experienced so often of asking, well, 
how is it possible that there are so many people who profess to have the gift of tongues, yet do not show that in their lives? And, I mean, for me, there are some scary conclusions. I remember listening to um, actually a Russian Pentecostal lady describing how she was a counselor. She counseled a lot of people in regards to um, just spiritual issues, depression, just hard life situations. And she was talking about the idea that there was a lot of young people who lived like wretched lives, like sexually immoral, um, drugs, uh, you know, the... the Just unrepentant. Unrepentant. Continual yeah. sinning. And they would just be elaborate in speaking of tongues. And in some, with some people, she concluded those guys were demon-possessed. And they spoke demonic tongues. And she had experiences where that was clearly evident and demonstrated. And so that, that kind of threw me back. I'm not saying that every single person who lives an immoral life and claims to speak in tongues or is demon-possessed or demon-oppressed right anyway. But that was a conclusion that she came up with. And I can't see help to see the similarities in, like, Kudalini um, religions and, like, Eastern religions that have tongue speakers. Like when you go into a trance. And yeah, kind of and they speak in tongues. out-of-body out experience. And, yeah, like and they're... they're they're speaking in tongues. Yeah. But they just happen to be demonic. And so the only way we could be cautious about that is if we look at scripture and see like, does my does my experience connect with what scripture says? Uh, two, um, some people, and I would say this is true, are so forced to, or I would say not forced, are so entrapped in the church that says you must speak in tongues in order to show evidence of your filling of the spirit that they have no way out. And so there's this psychological experience where, you know, this is a great example of it. Do you remember going to football games in high school? Like being in the stands? I think I've been to a total of like one football game. <laughs> so do you know when everyone's cheering and yeah. like everyone's just yelling and they're hyped? Uh, when you walk away from that, like when you're the game's over, let's say your team won, like there's this feeling of like elation, like like euphoric, euphoric, your voice is gone. Like you've just been hyped all this time. You just feel like, oh, like there's this euphoria. Yeah. Or if you go to a concert and you're real close to the stage. Yeah. You come, that, you come out of there real peaceful. <laughs> yeah, that feeling of euphoria is very similar or identical to the prayer meetings I experienced on Mondays at our church. Very similar right? Mm -hmm. Almost identical. And I'm not saying that that wasn't the work of the spirit that worked in my life and changed me at those meetings. But I would say that I'm not going to judge the work of the spirit based on a feeling of euphoria after the service. Right. Because I can experience the same kind of euphoria at a concert or, you know, anywhere else where it's, you know, that kind of atmosphere. Because I mean, everyone's yelling really loud in prayer yeah to me like if you if you look at the function of the of what the spirit is supposed to be doing in you mm -hmm. if anything you should come out of there humbled you should come out of there like like it should minister to your spirit and show you maybe where you needed to fix something or you know it you should come out of there not with like like this euphoric experience but you should come out of there thoughtful and like 
it, it should be different, right? Yeah. And I mean, everyone's experience could be different, right? If you, if you're repenting of horrid sin, you're going to, you're going to feel very down. If you're rejoicing in God's grace and blessing upon a certain thing, you're going to be joyful, right? Everyone's experience is going to be different, even if you're in a prayer meeting. Um, but a funny thing you mentioned is that thoughtful does not come to mind when you're quite literally shouting in tongues, right? Yeah. And I'm not saying shouting in tongues is wrong, but I'm saying that Paul says, I will pray with my mind and I will pray in the spirit. If you yeah. interpret that as I will pray with my mind and speaking tongues, um, the goal is not to pray really loud in tongues, which seems to be a very, very, um, the, the very goal of a lot of prayer meetings in the Pentecostal churches, right? The spirit is moving only when people are praying really loud in tongues. That, that's like the measurement of the spirit moving. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I would say that if, you know, if you're praying in tongues, like Paul said, if you're shouting in tongues, you better have an interpreter around to interpret your shouting. If you're not, why are you, why are you loud? Yeah. Be, pray to yourself and to God. Right? Do not disturb your neighbor because he won't understand your tongues to begin with. Um, and so those are the kind of things that really contradict what Scripture says about tongues. And a lot of times, uh, right, we go too far in one direction or another direction, but I would really like to get down into what Scripture says about these things and find out what the New Testament church experienced. And then my personal belief is that whatever the New Testament church experienced, shouldn't we be experiencing that too? Obviously, we don't experience Pentecost every year because that was necessary for one specific thing, for the establishment of the gospel and all these different people groups. But when Paul says, continue pursuing these gifts and don't um, restrict, or what does he say? Don't, let me find it. Don't forbid speaking in tongues. Who, who are you to disagree with Paul? Yeah. Paul says don't forbid, right? He, he, but you could say like, Paul says don't forbid, yeah. But he also gives parameters of how to do it, right? It's like, don't forbid. It's for- not just chaos. Yeah, don't mm-hmm. forbid someone to drive on the road, but there's there's speed limits and there are lanes and there's blink uh, signal blinkers, right? Yeah. Um, there's a way of going about it in orderly worship. Um, so that's kind of the atmosphere that, is sometimes you know connected to tongues and my heartfelt desire is to have people in pentecostal movements look at scripture and then compare their experience with the gift of tongues to scripture and say well yeah like praise god that one day i was just praying and god filled me with the spirit and speaking tongues mm-hmm. right or the person who went to a prayer meeting and was taught to speak tongues will say this is extremely difficult because this has been the last 10 years of my life. But I was taught to speak in tongues. The Spirit never filled and gave me the gift of tongues. And now I have to go out and live my life and tell people, hey, that was wrong. Like, it becomes a part of your identity if you're in a Pentecostal church. Yeah. That's hard. Yeah, that's rough. But I would want to encourage people that your eternal destination and your the glory of Christ and your eternal salvation is not based on whether you have the gift of tongues. It's based upon your trusting and the righteous justification that you received from the death of the cross of Christ. Yeah. Right. So like 
realize that and then afterward live your life according to and don't stick your identity in the fact that you were part of this thing and now you have to challenge yourself in regards to both aspects right yeah like on judgment day you won't be asked did you speak in tongues no you you will point to jesus and you say i am only here able to stand before god and be justified because of jesus and his work on the cross that's it yeah and again some people do believe that if you don't speak in tongues the spirit doesn't live in you he kind of huddles around you or he you know and i remember a conversation about I don't even remember who it was, but someone mentioned the fact that how do bapti- how will bapti- Baptists get raptured mm-hmm. if the Holy mm-hmm. Spirit doesn't live in them, you know, because they don't speak in tongues. Um, there is a big issue, and I know a lot of Pentecostals will deny it in regards to saying, like, there's second-tier Christianity, but at least from our experiences, there are clearly people who treat people who don't speak in tongues as people who are less spiritual than they are right modern day samaritans yeah Yeah. (laughs) you know those who don't speak in tongues are literally modern day samaritans and they're the jews and the whole point is like look at scripture find out what scripture says about the gift of tongues the filling of the spirit the pentecost right all these things are scriptural and compare your experience to what the bible says and at times it takes some hard hard realizations and hard doing hard things about you living as a christian that you've been doing for years you're like that was wrong that's hard to change right i mean it's hard to change but if uh, the word of god is our standard and that's how we worship god based on what he asks of us not based of what we feel is right then it's like worth it to know god and to know what he yeah yeah. Finds acceptable. Yeah, if it's if it's scripture alone being our authority for life and godliness, shouldn't we rely and cling to that and reject any other experience that contradicts scripture and rely on God's holy word to how we should live our lives? I think that's mm-hmm. that's like the goal of a Christian, mm-hmm. right? Conform to what God says we should conform to in scripture. Uh, tongues, do you speak them? Um, yeah always be reforming yeah praise god see you guys bye